0: I think I can say with a fair amount of certainty that I'm the only one preaching this morning with a locomotive getting ready to hit me. Isn't this amazing? Huh? Wow. wow, Jerry, right? You did most of this? Yeah? A very, a very humble, I don't know. I don't know. So the, the, the guy's amazing. He can build anything. If you need a new house, just contact Jerry. I'm sure he can help you. I once heard a pastor say from this pulpit, many of you remember Hans Helmrich. I remember Hans in a message that he brought here at TCF once, that God always accomplishes his purposes through relationships. Now I've thought about that statement for many years, because I've seen God work in relationships in so many different ways. And I've seen how important relationships are in pretty much every part of life. I saw this to be true in my work life back when I had my own PR agency, and I was a consultant. And the reporters and editors with whom I worked uh, are the ones that I had the strongest relationship with. So the ones that I was very invested in were the ones who were most likely to be interested in the things that I had to say to them on behalf of my clients. So I focused on building those relationships even more uh, fo- than I focused on crafting the messages to those people. As I got closer to people here at TCF as a young adult, I saw that the relationships I developed here at TCF were very formative. They were part of what God used to shape my theology, to shape my thinking on many issues, even issues that were beyond purely faith related things. I can even think back on how I first came to Christ when I was 16 years old. It was through a relationship with the girl next door, ironically. And her family shared the gospel with me. So when I first heard Hans say that, I hesitated at first of the idea of God always accomplishes his purposes through relationships. God's free to do anything that he wants to do. But I've since come to think that this is probably true if you dig down. Though if we examine it closely, we might find a few exceptions here or there in life or more importantly, we might find some exceptions in the Word. I think it's clear from any honest examination of the work of God in individual lives and in human history, as well as an understanding of His Word, that relationships are critical in pretty much anything God does. Relationships can be family. They can just be friendships. They can be focused on activities like school or church. They can be focused on neighbors, or sports, or any extracurricular activity. When many people think of relationships, they often think of the male-female dynamic, either boyfriend, girlfriend, or marriage. There are also few things that are more ripe for humor than male-female relationships. Stephen Wright, for example, once said, I almost had a psychic girlfriend, but she left me before we met. A man named Jonathan Carroll said, you have to walk carefully in the beginning of love. The running across fields into your lover's arms can only come later when you're sure that they won't laugh if you trip. Agatha Christie said, an archaeologist is the best husband any woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. (laughs) One man said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. Another man said, when a man and a woman marry, they become one. The trouble starts when they try to decide which one. And last but not least, one woman said, my husband says I treat him like he's a god. Every meal is a burnt offering. (laughs) And here's one that's not really funny, but it is very true, and it's consistent with some of the things we're going to look at and explore today. A writer named Robert Quillen said this, A happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. Isn't that good? And it's true. In many ways, we are even defined by our relationships and not, as the current cultural moment seems to teach, by our individual views of ourselves. And, of course, the most important relationship any of us can have is with the Lord. The only identity that truly matters in the life of a Christian is our identity in Christ. All of our other relational identities are rooted in that core relational identity. God is our Creator. He is our Master. He is our Lord. He is our Father. Jesus is our Brother, our Friend, our Savior. The Holy Spirit is our Counselor and Advocate and Comforter. Think about this, all of those are relational terms, aren't they? I might, for example, describe myself as a husband, a father, a friend, a brother, an uncle, a grandfather, an elder of a church. All of these descriptions of me are relational, and they don't make any sense at all apart from how I interact with someone else. And how we interact with one another is not only relational, but it is a vital component of how God accomplishes his purposes in our lives as individuals and, if you think about it, even in human history. This is why we see so many relational terms in Scripture, which is, after all, our final authority for our faith, for our practice, how we believe, what we do. Nowadays, you can sometimes read about churches or church members in various places who have battles over various things, some of which are important and worth debating, and others clearly not that important. Unfortunately, church divisions and splits are not uncommon. They're bad enough when a few individuals fuss about something, but when factions develop and people start taking sides, it's worse. It's bad because the world notices when Christians are divided. It's news. It's even in the news. I mean, how often do you read about the battles in this denomination and that denomination? It seems clear that the quality and character of our relationships with each other are a sign to the outside world, an example of the gospel at work in our daily lives. They'll know we are Christians by our love. And when we love each other, we don't get divided. The Apostle Paul certainly thought so. He wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Isn't that a great phrase? the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's something I see more often than not here at TCF. Think about this. How has TCF managed to avoid the strife and division that many other churches around the nation and indeed around the world have faced in this past year? It's been a weird time, and it has divided Christians from one another, and it's divided churches. Here's some quotes from a survey of pastors about these controversies. Different political opinions on both sides are elevated to the point of doctrine. I'm feeling the pressure of helping the congregation to have love and grace for one another with the varying viewpoints of how to respond to this virus. Mask, no mask, sources of truly reliable information as to numbers and true impact of the virus. Politics entering that whole discussion. Another pastor said, my people are in very different places regarding the virus. Some are losing patience and want to get on with normal life with little regard for the potential consequences. Others are still practicing extreme social distancing and are having a tough time understanding others who are not taking this as seriously as they are. Another pastor said, People's attitudes have split very much on partisan lines. Half the church is opposed to any reopening. Half the church is frustrated that we haven't long since reopened. Aren't you glad you live in Oklahoma And most of this stuff is behind us, at least here it is. But we have brothers and sisters around the country and some places in the world. As Dan and Mary Lou mentioned, most of uh, Central America and South America are still shut down. So I'm grateful that we are where we are, unless we want to fight over who gets vaccinated and who doesn't. I don't. I'm not going to fight about that. So there's always going to be something that has the potential to divide. If it's not COVID and it's not politics, it's going to be something else. But in this past year, TCF's never had these kinds of divisions become apparent in our fellowship. Why is that? It's not because we all agree with one another about some of these issues, because I know we don't. I believe it's because we prioritize our relationships in Christ over sometimes strongly held personal opinions on politics, or COVID, or other potentially divisive things. And that's the way it should be. I've spoken with you, many of you, through the year, and so I know that these opposing perspectives were very passionately held. But because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we choose to lay aside these issues that are not unimportant, but less important issues, and focus on who we are together in Christ. That's placing the relationship above the disagreements on what are, we have to admit, disputable matters. There are, of course, some things that will inevitably lead to division. I'm not just saying, can't we all just get along about everything? okay? There are some non-negotiable theological issues on which we must stand firmly, even at the risk of division. Yet I will say that there are fewer of these kinds of questions That we sometimes think and every issue is not the hill we're supposed to die on to defend to the death to the death of a relationship and that's what division can be division is just another word for lack of unity so the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace doesn't always mean we have political or cultural issues that we have to navigate or we have to somehow learn to set aside just to keep the peace sometimes it's just because we can be annoying can we just be honest about this sometimes we can just we're just annoying and we annoy somebody we can have personalities that may be hard to get along with we can have annoying habits so please don't say amen or look around the room or point at somebody you're thinking of we can be frustrating we can be irritating we can be even infuriating In other words, we can sometimes behave like sinners. Surprise! Surprise! None of us are perfect. It reminds me of a poem called The Perfect Church. I'll read a few verses of it. If you should find the perfect church without one fault or smear, for goodness sake, don't join that church. You'd spoil the atmosphere. If you should find the perfect church where all anxieties cease, then pass it by, lest joining it, you'd mar the masterpiece. That's where we are, folks. So our relationship with Jesus is foundational to all of our other relationships. Your relationship with God is vital to your Christian walk. But your school friends, the health of your marriage, your family relationships, your church relationships, and relationships across the whole spectrum of life also reflect on your personal relationship with the Lord. The most important relationship in our lives as Christians should be with Jesus, walking in faith with Christ. Because we know Jesus, because we have a firm foundation in our relationship with Him, we are able to have better relationships with those around us. Os Guinness wrote this, A person is a person only in relationship. It is not that we are bound by the others in our lives, such as our families, friends, and neighbors. Rather, it's that we humans become individual people only in relationship with others. We grow and mature only in a rich field of person-to-person interaction with others. A South African proverb says it all, a person becomes a person through other persons. He goes on to write, the fullness of human life is something that happens between people rather than within each one. In the advanced modern world, the bonding of institutions from marriage to neighborhoods to political parties is melting faster than polar ice caps, and relationships are even more atomized, virtual, and a matter of temporary convenience rather than lasting covenant. In the traditional Jewish and Christian view, By contrast, there is no greater folly than the masterless self. We noted earlier that one of the relationships we have is with God and that he is our master and our Lord. That's the relationship that we have with him. When we abandon that perspective, we inevitably develop the idea that we are not responsible to anyone but ourselves. This thinking destroys relationships and we get the kinds of things we've seen develop in our culture so rapidly over these past several years. In turn this leads to the radical autonomy that we see in our culture which has manifested itself in the whole identity movement. I identify as what I want to be regardless of the relational consequences of that and this works out very practically we see in the whole LGBTQ agenda. But when we look at this biblically we see again how a God accomplishes his purposes in our lives through our relationships and we see clearly that relationships are not simply about me it's always about us there's an Oxford evolutionary psychologist named Robin Dunbar and he's best known for his namesake robbins dunbar's number and he defines that as the number of stable relationships people are able to cognitively maintain at once he thinks that number is about 150 and this means that his research and his experience says we can only have about 150 truly stable relationships at any one given time now of course people move in and out of that number throughout the course of our lives. In other words, the 150 people that I'm capable of having a genuine and stable relationship with today might include some people that I've known for years or new years ago, but maybe some or even many who were in that number when I was 20 are no longer in that number that I'm almost 65. Now, I'm not in the habit of quoting an evolutionary psychologist in a Sunday sermon. But this is an example of how God's common grace allows the world to figure things out and to learn things that even believers can benefit from. So stick with me here. He learned some things from research that we might actually know already kind of intuitively. and Maybe we just haven't articulated it yet. For example, relations, relationships turned out to be highly structured in the sense that people didn't see or contact everybody in their social network equally and we're not necessarily talking about social media, we're just talking about your social network. But this is also especially true in this era of social media. You may have 800 friends or followers on Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest, but you don't have 800 friends, sorry. Here's a handy little illustration of how relationships may work in real life. I know it's kind of small for you to see on a screen, but you can see that it's an ever-growing circle Of varying relationships in your life and at the very middle you have close family and then best friends closer to the inside of the circle and moving out to just friends and eventually to acquaintances and just people that you know. Here's another reality that should probably be intuitive but we sometimes ignore these layers that you see on this chart come about primarily because the time we have for social interaction is not infinite Does that come as a surprise to anybody? Our time is limited, right? You have to decide how to invest your time, remembering that the strength of relationships is directly correlated with how much time and effort that we give them. With whom do we spend our time? How much time do we spend with them? If the foundational relationship, as we've already looked at, the core of our life as a believer, is our relationship with Christ, what do these things that the world seems to have discovered tell us? And if most of our time is spent with unbelievers, and we seldom cultivate relationships with Christians, what does that tell us? I'm not saying we shouldn't be with unbelievers. We should, right? The research says that it takes about 200 hours of investment in the space of a few months to move a stranger into being a good friend. This fits with our data, which suggests that close friends are very expensive in terms of time investment to maintain. I think the figures are a guideline rather than precise. It just means friendships require work. And hopefully that doesn't come as a surprise to anybody either. So starting with our relationship with the Lord and then extending to our relationship with our spouses, our families, our church, etc., true and vital relationships cost us. They cost us in terms of time. They are an investment of ourselves, our emotional energy, sometimes our money, but always our time. Relationships at whatever level, from marriage to family to the church, require effort. And this shouldn't surprise us, but sometimes we behave as if it does. And the work isn't just an investment of time, it's an all-in investment of ourselves. There's a relationship and marriage researcher named John Gottman. I first learned of him from Jim Grinnell some years ago. And he claims he can predict with 90% accuracy which couples will end up divorced. He calls it the 5 to 1 ratio, and his website explains that the difference between happy and unhappy couples is the balance between positive and negative interactions during conflict. There is a very specific ratio that makes love last. That magic ratio is five to one. This means that for every negative interaction during conflict a stable and happy marriage has five or more positive interactions. Those interactions need not be anything big or dramatic. A simple eye roll or raised voice counts as a negative interaction. A quick joke to diffuse tension, a squeeze of a partner's hand, or listening closely when your partner vents about his or her day all constitute a positive interaction. The important thing isn't the scale of the gesture, it's their relative frequency. So again, while this is an observation about marriage, marriage is a type of relationship. It's one of those core relationships in many lives, and it fits into the inner circle of this illustration we looked at a moment ago. So doesn't it make sense that this truth, this five-to-one ratio, would apply to any relationship we have? If our relationships with the ever-widening circle from family to close friends, to best friends, to good friends, and on out, to acquaintances, you remember that circle chart. If they were marked by at least five positive interactions to one negative, at least, that doesn't mean it has to be exactly five to one, it would be great if it was ten to one, wouldn't it? Doesn't it follow that these will be good or at least better relationships? I think it does. And I also see that the Word of God supports this. Now Jim Garrett has described it this way. Some of you probably heard him say this. When you must have a difficult conversation with someone you are in relationship with, any kind of relationship, the bridge you've built over time must be strong enough to hold up that difficult conversation or that negative interaction. It's almost as if you have, over time, with all those positive interactions, earned the right to speak hard truths to someone doesn't mean we have to go looking for it. They'll come up. It's almost as if you've proven your love to them with your positive interaction over time, and thus this bridge of relationship can fully support the strain of a negative interaction. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace can only be sustained by these kinds of relationships. So let's look again at the passage of Scripture we looked at earlier. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How about that word, eager, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That means you really want it, right? You want to do everything you can to make sure it happens. So that doesn't mean you're eager to get your point across. It doesn't mean you're eager to share your opinion, not eager to get your way, not eager to win an argument, not eager even to be right, not eager to have myself affirmed, but eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What a great admonition from Scripture. And Paul just doesn't ask us to do this without any additional application. He gives a couple of practical examples here. And in many other places in Scripture, we see this uh, clear application using two key words, one another. Now, it may be coincidental that some of our women, as Joel noted a moment ago, are going to the Bible study that Beth is hosting on Monday nights on this uh, theme, but I believe the Holy Spirit doesn't allow for coincidences. I was preparing this message well before I had any idea what Beth is doing for her summer Bible study. I didn't know, but God did. Our life together, my brothers and sisters, is to be focused first on Christ, but in Christ we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by paying attention to, by seeking to grow in these, if you will, these one another isms we actually see it stated as such in this passage in Ephesians, where Paul tells us to bear with one another. We see those, that phrase, one another. Bear with implies that there's something difficult to manage, doesn't it? You could almost translate it, put up with one another. It implies that sometimes relationships won't be that easy. But he implies three additional one another"isms in the verse 2, though he doesn't use the words one another in this passage in Ephesians. Uh, other than the one time, it's clear that our humility is to be toward one another, right? doesn't make sense without that understanding. Our gentleness is to be with one another, and our patience is with one another. So in thinking about this passage, I remember the many times we see this two-word combination in the New Testament, and how the frequency of this in the Word of God indicates the importance that God must place on how we relate to one another in the body of Christ and in every kind of relationship that we have. It's so important that God inspired the writers of Scripture to be specific and to provide us many, many specific examples of how we are to relate to one another, our fellow believers, and in many cases, to the rest of the world. Several years ago, I did a search of the New Testament and came up with 38 different one another isms and I don't believe that this particular search reveals the entirety of what the Word of God has to say on this theme that's because again I found many verses where depending on the translation the words one another was were assumed rather than stated as such for example one of the verses that I looked at 2nd Corinthians 13 11, it included an additional one-anotherism, also stated, live in peace. So it's assumed by the context that this means live in peace with one another. There are other verses where the idea to live in peace with one another is stated more explicitly, explicitly with the actual words one another. For example, in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, it also says, be at peace with one another. In a few cases, my search included the words, each other. But I didn't do a thorough search of those two words, which can mean virtually the same thing as one another. I'm convinced if I'd done so, I'd find even more one another-isms. So the study I did included only those verses and actually using those words one another. And because of that, I think I can say fairly confident that there are at least 38 different one another-isms in the New Testament. What does that fact mean to us? Don't we think this must be pretty important, pretty central to how we are to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? One another is clearly connected to relationships. Most of these one anotherisms are expressed positively. That is what the, what it means is that say they do this, live in peace with one another. But seven of them are also expressed negatively. In other words, they say, don't do this with each other. Don't lie to each other. Now, I didn't figure out whether it's uh, Gottman's five-to-one ratio of positive to negative, but it just reinforces that truth is something we discover, not something we invent, and the Bible is a book of truth. Let's look at another passage that's richly relational. And uh, let's look for the many one another isms that we see that are implicit in this passage. First, I'm going to read the passage as is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And then right after that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it and I'm going to include the implied one another's ideas. So when we read it as it uh, is translated, we read, Put on then God's chosen holy ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you must also forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony so if we look at that and we take in the implied one another's we see put on then as God's chosen holy ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts toward one another kindness toward one another Humility toward one another, meekness with one another, and patience with each other. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love toward one another, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So you see the force of those one another statements, and the implicit as well as the explicit. The overarching one-anotherism we see in this passage of Scripture, or the foundational one-anotherism on which, which, say one-anotherism five times real fast, uh, on which all one another's depend is obviously what? Love one another. It's all built on that. Pretty much every other one-anotherism is a practical aspect of loving one another. In the study I did, I found the phrase love one another at least 14 times in the New Testament more than any other one another-ism. Even in the passage we read a moment ago from Colossians 3, we see that this is the chief, the foundational one another-ism and the root of all the others. Verse 14 says, And above all these put on love. And above all these, it's setting a priority, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As we read the many one another verses in the New Testament, we see very often love combined with or even elevated above the one another isms in specific verses. For example, in First Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 8, it says, above all, so there again we see that idea of prioritizing, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We could spend a whole sermon talking about that. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So what Peter's telling us here is that loving one another is an above all commandment. And it flows directly into hospitality and to service for one another. Love one another is clearly a commandment. We read in John 15, beginning with verse 12, This is my commandment. These are the words of Jesus. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And then in 1 John, it's reinforced in chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. We have to recognize, however that these one-another-isms are rooted not in our need to be nice people, good people, even moral people. These one-another-isms, and especially the overarching one-another-ism of love one another, are all rooted in and grounded in God's love for us. That's where it starts. We love because He first loved us. God chose to have a relationship with us. God is the author and perfecter. Of our faith which I believe means he is also the author and perfecter of our relationships in Christ he chooses to use those things to accomplish his purposes in all of our lives and in human history so when Paul writes in Ephesians 4 I urge you I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called part of that calling is to have the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, in godly one another honoring relationships in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Scripture gives us so many practical things about loving one another, and all the various one another things that we see in Scripture, Father, are designed so that we would indeed have unity in the Spirit and the bond of peace. We pray, Heavenly Father, as I believe it already is, but we pray it would be more so true of this church, that that would be a true hallmark of this church, that we would love one another, that we would serve one another, and we would be careful, Father God, to practice these one-another-isms and have the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But we know, Heavenly Father, that this can only come about because of your love for us and your Holy Spirit equipping us to do these things. So we ask for that grace now. We ask, Heavenly Father, for your grace to help us to love one another and to continue to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bill, for time.